Okay, well, we are in uh, Romans uh, chapter 7 still, and uh, we are uh, down to about verse 17. Last week, we were looking at verses, uh, verses uh, uh, basically verses 14, 15, and 16 is what we got covered last week, and we are doing... Uh, Basically, uh, my goal today is to do verses 17 through uh, verse 20. Uh, The reason it's not looking right to me is I'm looking at the wrong chapter. Yeah, here we go. Verses 17 through 20 makes it easier when I look in the right place. But uh, let's, uh, by way of uh, just uh, getting our context again, Uh, Let's begin reading in uh, verse 13 and read down through verse 25, which sets the context of our passage. Uh, And then we'll review a little bit what we talked about last week and go on. Uh, Beginning in verse 13, Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? You'll remember that in the verses just before that, he had been talking about how uh, when God gave the law, that the result of receiving the law was was uh, that people sinned more and it actually uh, caused their death. And so he's asking, therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that Evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Okay. And as I said last week, we looked at verses 14 through 16, basically. Uh, And so by way of review, what do you remember that we talked about last week?
Okay. 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 So, uh, so what you're implying there by what you said is that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to share the blame here. Uh, so, uh, so what you're implying by what you said is that although he's using the present tense here, he doesn't mean the present tense. Okay, well, how could that be? I mean, don't we, don't we take the Bible literally? Can <laughs> we get into your story? <laughs> yeah, we could get into my... Oh, you mean my story, Climbing on the Garden of the Gods? Yeah, we could get into that story again. <laughs> Those of you guys who weren't here missed an exciting, thrilling, spellbinding story last week. <laughs> it's a story. Yeah, it's a, yeah. <laughs> it's a story, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We talked about how the present tense is used in various cases. Is the present tense always used to describe something in the present tense? You're shaking your head back there, Sarah. It's called the historical present tense. Okay, okay. And what do you mean by that? It means that um, a narration of something that happened in the past is couched in the present tense um, for dramatic um, literary um, style type purposes um, to make it Okay, so what we discover then is the present tense can be either a literal present tense. When somebody's speaking in present tense, they're talking about what's happening to them right now in their present experience. Or it could be what I called last week the rhetorical present tense. It's used, uh, it's used not in a literal sense, but to, to make a rhetorical point, to draw you into a story of something that may have happened in the past or whatever. So when we are reading something or hearing something in the present tense, how do we determine whether or not it's a literal present tense or a rhetorical present tense? Okay, you've got to consider the context. You have to look at the context. And so as we look at Romans chapter 7 and you're just reading down through Romans chapter 7, and uh, suddenly in verse 14, in verse 13, he's speaking in the past tense. And then in verse 14, he switches to the present tense. And the remainder of the chapter is in the present tense. Now, if somebody's speaking in the present tense, normally the normal interpretation or understanding we would put on that is that, uh, is that they, they are speaking about something that's happening to them right now or their present experience. That would be the normal way to interpret it. And so as we approach Romans 7, unless there is some compelling reason in Romans chapter 7 to view it as a rhetorical present tense, we should, we should view it as a literal present tense. Okay? So... Uh, so the question then comes up, are there compelling reasons in Romans chapter 7 to view it in a rhetorical rather than a literal sense? Okay, And so those are some of the things we talked about last week. What else? Could you use Mark as an example? 
example of that? Did I use Mark? No. The book of Mark? No. He does in fact. He uses that okay. technique a lot. Okay, great. Uh, writing in the he writes as if it's in the current tense. Yeah. You know, because he's writing about something that happened several hundred years ago. Yes. Not. Okay. Good. Great. Well, no, we, no, we didn't cite that as an example. Well, that was the first one I thought. Yeah. I, I'm still not convinced that that's what he's doing here, but that's okay. Okay. I, I thought. Well, you weren't here last week. Hear my reasons. <laughs> I thought for sure. I've been gone three weeks. Yeah. Playing that you guys are gonna be done with. Gonna yeah. Be no, no. We were waiting for you to come back. <laughs> so. Okay. Uh, I have another yeah. question, but I'm weird about us. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can share your... Okay. Okay, great. So, what Okay. I made clear, and I re-emphasized re- this last week, but like I said, you were gone, is to say that Romans 7 is not talking about the current, the struggle the believer experiences currently, the Christian current experiences, is not to say the Christian does not struggle. Uh, it's simply to say that that's not what Romans 7 is talking about. Okay? So, uh, so that I want to make clear. We understand the Christian struggles. Paul talks about other places where, you know, the struggle with sin. So, in fact, Romans 6 implies there's a struggle with sin. So, uh, so to say that Romans 7 is not talking about a, the Christian struggle with sin is not to say that a Christian does not struggle with sin. It's just that that's not what, Roman, that's not what I believe that Romans 7 is talking about. Okay. Uh, uh, secondly, the, the question then comes up, well, then why are we even bothering? If we're Christians, why are we even bothering studying Romans 7? What's its relevance? What's its application to us? And the answer to that, you have to come back next week. <laughs> I, because what I, want, what I stressed as we approach this subject of chapter 7, what I stress is I want to get the interpretation down. Once we get the interpretation of Romans 7 down, then we can go back and ask, okay, how does that apply to us as believers? So we'll address that question. That's my plan next week is to address that question of uh, how, how does this relate to us as believers? Can we learn anything from this? If this is really talking about somebody before they were a Christian and the struggle they go through before they were a Christian, then, then what can we learn from this and how can we apply this in our lives? And we'll look at that question next week. Does that answer your question? Okay, good. Um, well, one of the things I'm sure you guys talked about because in this passage was the emphasis on the law being good and spiritual and um, that it would be easy to say, well, because of the problems here in my life, the law must be bad. Mm-hmm. He, he uh, proved that that's not the case. The law right. is spiritual. Yes. So I'm sure you guys talked about that, right? Yes, we did. Yeah. And that's what his experience demonstrates to him. His experience dem- demonstrates to him that the law 
which as we've made clear in the context here, interpretation-wise, is the Mosaic Law, the law that was given at Mount Sinai to Israel, is, was good, it was holy, it was spiritual. Okay? And, and Paul's experience with the law and with sin before he became a Christian emphasized that to him, demonstrated to him that the law was good. And we'll go into that a little bit more today. But let me back up on this issue of uh, the present tense. Are there compelling reasons to view uh, Romans 7 as a rhetorical present tense rather than a literal present tense? And of course, my argument was last week that yes, there are. And the two compelling reasons, what are to me compelling reasons, and you may differ, and that's fine with me, as I made clear all the way through this, you may end up concluding differently about Romans 7 than I do, and that's, that's uh, uh, you know, I can live with that. Uh, I'll still love you as a brother or sister in Christ, you know, but uh, there may be other reasons why I won't, but at least not that, that won't be the reason. <laughs> but... Um, what are the compel- what are to me the compelling reasons that it is a rhetorical rather than a literal present tense? And one of them is even if you view this as talking about a believer, it's clear that he's not using a very strict literal present tense. And the reason I say that is because you'll notice that in verse 14 uh, he talks about something. Uh, uh, something that he does, uh, excuse me, in uh, yeah, verse 15, something that he does not understand. OK, so he says, I don't understand this. And then within a couple verses, he's given an explanation. He's providing for us an explanation of the thing that he said in verse 14. He did not understand. So clearly he's talking to us about a process that happened in his life, whether it happened either as a believer or as an unbeliever, he's talking about a process where he starts out not understanding something and then ends up discovering or understanding something about himself. So the thing that he doesn't understand in verse 15 by verses 17 and 18, he is now understanding it. So clearly you can't say it's all his present experience. Even if he's writing as a believer, it's not all his present experience. It's something that he didn't understand at one point, and now I do understand it. So clearly it cannot, cannot be strictly, entirely his present experience, whether he's writing as an unbeliever or as a believer in this place, in this particular case. Okay? The other reason, the other compelling reason that I see in the passage to see it as a rhetorical rather than literal. And again, I want to emphasize that, that applying just the normal principles of interpretation, we would understand, we would understand the, pre, the present tense to be literal unless we have compelling reasons. Okay? So it's really the burden of proof is on me. The burden of proof is on the person who views it as something that happened in Paul's past, whether earlier in his Christian experience or before he was saved. If the, the burden of proof is on us to demonstrate that there's a reason to take it rhetorically. And the first is the one I just gave you. Clearly, he's talking about a process that took place over a period of time. Secondly, when we look at the way he describes himself, he describes himself as being in bondage to sin, being enslaved to sin. Okay, 
And we established in chapter 6 that that's characteristic of the unbeliever. That is not characteristic of the believer. The believer struggles with sin, yes. But Romans 6 is clear that the believer is freed from bondage to sin. So though we struggle with sin, we're not enslaved to it. We're not in bondage to it. And Paul clearly describes a situation here where he's out of control in one sense. He wants to do one thing, but he can't. Yes, Rick? Does that kind of remind me of Martin Luther's experience before his conversion? That he tried everything he could to be righteous before God, but he could never quite get there. Yeah, that, that's a great example, Rick. Martin Luther is a great example. When you read the story of Martin Luther's struggle... And he struggled so much with sin, wanting to do fulfill God's law and do what was right. In this case, we're not talking about the Mosaic law, uh, but just trying to do what is right and failing to do it. And so cognizant of his failure, he actually made himself so sick he nearly died. And the story of his conversion where uh, finally he's lying there on his deathbed, <laughs> what would have been his deathbed, uh, because he is so sick from this struggle with sin that he has in his life. Uh, and, then, and then this aged monk comes in and talks to him and, and, and explains to him that Christ died for not just for the sins of the whole world, but for his own sins. And as he, explain, as he understands that and comes to grapple with that, uh, then he's converted to Christ. And so Martin Luther is a, a great example of this kind of thing. Okay? Uh, yeah. I guess my viewpoint may be a little bit different. Uh, he's in verse 14 and, and verse 18 both. He specifies he's talking about in his flesh. Yes. So, and the way I would understand this, and you can address this perhaps, that our flesh is still in bondage to sin. And it's our spirit that is obeying God. Uh, yes. But in his condition in verse 14, he says... I am a flesh. So he equates the ego with the flesh in verse 14. So, in other words, the condition that he is describing is a condition in which he exists in the flesh, which Romans chapter 8 makes very clear is an unbeliever. Romans 8 makes very clear that the person who is of the flesh is not a Christian. Okay. So, yes, as a Christian, I still have a body. Okay. Uh, the other thing we have to wrestle with, and this gets very difficult uh, issue. We could spend probably weeks talking about this, how the scripture uses the word flesh. And as you probably know, it's used in a whole array of different ways and possibly even is used two different ways in this passage. So those are things, you know, that we're not going to try to tackle today because they get so complex. OK, uh, but that's a good point. Uh, I'm trying to think of anything else we covered last week we need to bring up. Anything you remember from last week you wanted to mention? Right. Yes. That's correct. That's correct.
Yes. 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 We'll get into that some today and then again some more next week as we get into the issue of application. Yeah, that's great. Uh, the thing about verse 16 that is that is Paul's the, the point that Paul is trying to make is. Uh, uh, is that he has learned two things by this conflict of sin, of sin within him as it conflicts with the law. There's two things he's learned. And one thing is he's learned that the law is good. Okay. So by, by the very fact that he finds himself wanting to do the law, he realizes, okay, that means I know the law is good. Okay. So, so he is uh, in verse 16, he's explained to us how he knows what he stated in verse 14. In verse 14, he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. OK, so in uh, in verse 16, then he's explaining how he knows the first part of that. There's two things in verse 14. He knows he knows the law is good. He knows he's a flesh weren't sold into bondage to sin. Those are the two things. The way he knows the law is good is that when God gave the law inside, something inside of him said, I want to do that. Okay, I want to do that. He wasn't able to do it, but he acknowledged that that was something he wanted to do. And that very acknowledgement, what he describes in Romans chapter two as this intrinsic nature, those who by nature want to do good. Okay, and he uses that term. The idea is there's something in us that God has planted in us. There's something in us that wants to do good. Okay, even though it's incapable of doing it. And so so Paul says that awareness that I have that the law is here and and there's something about me that wants to do that is an indication I know that the law is good. Okay, so he's answered the first question. How do I know the law is good? The second thing, the thing he really needed to discover, the thing he didn't understand is this second part, that he was a flesh and that he was sold into bondage to sin. Okay, so in uh, uh, so in verse uh, 15, he begins to explain how this process worked, how he came to this discovery. Now, beginning a couple weeks ago and then last week, I stressed this or talked about this train of logic that we see all the way through this passage. OK, and and we see the flags of logic in, in verse in each verse. We see the little flag that says this is a logical progression from what happened from what I just said. So in verse 15, he starts with the word for in verse 16, he starts with the word but. In verse 17, he starts with the word, the phrase, the, the uh, logical expression. So now uh, in verse 18, he, st- he begins it with the word for verse 19, the word for verse 20, the word. But verse 21, I find then verse 22 for verse 23, but uh, and then he reaches his conclusions in 24 and 25. OK, so I want to go back and I want to talk a little bit about this progression again uh, and look at this progression because six months from now or a year from now, you're going to be 
thinking about Romans chapter 7 or you're going to be talking about Romans chapter 7 with somebody and you're going to go, you know, we talked all about that in, in, uh, in, uh, in class, you know, all about Romans 7, but I can't remember, you know, how did Rick reach the conclusions he reached? <laughs> you know, yeah. and so the key, there's, if you remember this one thing, it will give you uh, it will give you the tools to be able to go back to Romans 7 and work through it again. And that's this logical train. Follow the logic. Okay? And the logic starts in verse 13. In verse 13, he has asked the question, did that which is good, he's talking about the law, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? And then he says, of course, never. Never. That could never be, he says. But rather, he says... It was sin that caused his death. So it wasn't the law that caused him to die spiritually. It was sin that caused him to die spiritually. And he says, rather it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good. So it's that the law came in and when when sin, which he later on discovers, indwells him, when sin heard the law or saw the law, it latched onto it as the means by which it would kill him. And, in, and, and that interplay of sin and the law is what demonstrates how sinful sin is. The phrase he uses there at the end of the verse, how utterly sinful it is. And it's demonstrated to be utterly sinful by using one of the best things that God ever gave us, the law. And using one of the best, holiest things that God ever gave us to use that to destroy us, to kill us, shows us how evil sin is. Okay, that's his point. Then he says in verse 14, he says, for we know. So he links verse 14. The statement that we know something is linked to the statement he just made in chapter verse 13. For we know, and there's two things we know. The law is good, and I'm of flesh sold into bondage of sin. Those are two things I know. Which, ex- which is explaining what he just said in verse 13. That the sin worked through the law to kill me. I know the law is good, but I know I'm of flesh sold into bondage of sin. How do I know that? The next verse, for... And then he begins to explain how he knows that the law is good, but that he's of flesh. So verses 15 and following are an explanation of how he knows the law is good and he is of flesh. Okay. And so uh, so then he says, uh, for I am I am doing what I do not understand. I remember we're talking, I believe, here in a rhetorical sense rather than a literal past tense, but rather in a rhetorical past tense. He's talking about his experience with the law before he was a believer and he's drawing us into it to vividly, so we will vividly understand and appreciate this conflict the sinner has when he encounters God's law. Okay? And so he says, I'm doing what I don't understand because on one part I want to do the law. And that's the testimony we see of Paul. That's exactly the way Paul's life went. He loved the law. He was committed to the law. Now, when I say he loved the law, I'm not saying he loved God. Those are two different things. It's clear. It's clear that he was persecuting 
God. Okay? So we know he was persecuting God. He was persecuting Christ. So we're not saying he loved God. We're saying he loved the law. Those are two different things. Yeah, yeah. He thought that he was. Exactly. So he's loving the law and he's saying, I want to do it. But then he finds he's not doing it. Okay. Now with Paul, this is kind of an interesting thing because outwardly he really looked pretty good. He says, as to the righteousness which was in the law, I was found blameless. Philippians chapter 3. He calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. One of the people most committed to the law and love the law. Okay. So this is, this is, this is Paul's experience that he loves the law. He wants to do the law, but he finds himself not doing it. He finds himself doing just the opposite of what he wanted to do. Now, we can all raise our hands and identify with that, right? <laughs> Either before or after we're Christians, okay? Which is why it's so easy to identify this passage as an explanation of the Christian's experience. Because all of us experience this at times. We want to do one thing, we find ourselves doing the other, you know? We want to say the right words at some time and we open our mouth and what comes out, you know? We go, why did I say that, you know? That was so stupid, you know? That was so wrong to say that, you know? It's so easy to do. Well, this is the conflict Paul experiences. So he says uh, in verse 16, but if I do the very thing I do not want to do. So again, he's following the logic here. The logic is I find I'm going. I, I know that the law is good and I am sold in flesh. I'm in the flesh, sold in bondage to sin. And I know this because I've gone through this process. The process is, verse, beginning in verse 15, that I first I didn't understand what was going on because I found myself agreeing with the law and then not, but not doing it. I wanted to do it, but I didn't do it. I did just the opposite. So the good that I wanted to do, I didn't do, and the evil that I didn't want to do, I do do, he says later. Okay? So, so he says... I now know, yes, the law is good. Okay, I agree with the law. I know that. Then he comes to verse 17. Here's where we stopped last week because 17 gives us all kinds of problems. Okay, so we've got to think about 17 because it's very easy to misunderstand 17. It's very easy to draw dangerous <laughs> implications out of verse 17 if we're not careful. He says, so no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know, he says, that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the evil, very evil I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. So Paul has moved from thinking before the encounter with the law, thinking, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good guy. Yeah, I make mistakes. And once in a while I do a bad thing, you know. But it's, just, it's kind of like a mosquito, you know. Mosquitoes are annoying, but they're not really, you know, they're just kind of incidental to life. You know, unless you live in Michigan or someplace like that, you know, in which case they're all consuming. OK, but but mosquitoes are just kind of there and you just swat them away. And that's how before we were Christians, 
And before we really came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's kind of how we tended to view sin. Okay, it's just as you know, it's kind of like this. As I said, it's kind of like this little Kia pet. You know, and we can we can keep it in a cage and we've got it under control. And what and the reason God gave the law was so that we would no longer view sin that way, but that we would realize that sin is this horrible ogre, this overpowering, domineering tyrant that runs our lives. And until we understand that about sin, we're not going to think we need a Savior. And so God gave the law so that we would go through this process that Paul talks about. God gave the law so that we go through this process of understanding that sin is not this annoying little mosquito in my life, but sin is a slave master over me. I'm in bondage to it. And I can do nothing but sin. Even though in my mind, I know the law is good. And even though in my mind, I say, I want to do what's right. Even though I say that, I find myself in bondage to sin. So that is where Paul is moving in his understanding here. And when he gets to the end of it, he cries out in desperation, as we'll see next week, uh, if we get that far, uh, in the verses we look at next week. But the question is, what does he mean in verse 17 when he says, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, because we see uh, the flow of the passage here as being a logical, a logical train, we see the phrase there, so now, not as a temporal phrase, not as a phrase in reference to time, but rather as a, uh, uh, an expression of a logical sequence. Okay? In other words, he's not saying that at one time uh, this and now this. Rather, he's saying, given all of these facts, now we understand this. Okay? So it's a logical so now rather than a temporal or a time-related so now. So the idea there is now understanding that I want to do what's right but I find myself not doing what's right, I now conclude that it's no longer I, but sin that dwells in me. Okay? Well, what does he mean by that? What we have here with Paul is something that's it's not prominent in Paul's theology, but it does come up at times, is, is this kind of a, a dualism in Paul's theology. Okay? And it's probably most pronounced right here in Romans 7, this idea of this uh, dualism. And uh, what we're really dealing with here, and, and this gets a little, uh, gets a little uh, maybe metaphysical or philosophical, so bear with me a little bit here. But what we're dealing with here is questions of ontology. Ontology has to do with the nature of being, what it means to be something, okay? And one of the big questions that we face as Christians and that all human beings face and philosophers and people who deal in metaphysics wrestle with this a lot is the question of what does it mean to be human? 
what is humanness and what does it mean to be a human being? Okay, and those are one of the things we we wrestle with in the Western world. There are two prominent views of what it means to be human. Okay, there are other views in other parts of the world, but in our Western culture, there are two predominant views of what it means to be human. And the first one is uh, is a view we call physicalism. And physicalism simply views the human being as just totally physical. Okay, this is how an atheist would view human human nature. Okay, we're just simply completely physical. Everything about there's nothing. You don't have a soul. There's no spiritual dimension to you. And there's no mind. Now, I know some of you think, you know, maybe you may think about, well, okay, Rick doesn't have a mind, but yeah. Uh, but we distinguish mind from the brain. Okay, now the physicalist does not. Okay, a dualist does, and I'll get to that in a minute. But physicalism says everything about you, all of your thoughts, all your feelings, all your emotions, love, hate, uh, Everything, all your sense, all your spirits is really just your physical brain and the electrical synapses and impulses that go on inside of your brain. So when you're loving your, you know, your pet carrier or whatever, you know, or your wife, as the case may be, whatever the case. Yeah. When you're loving, you know, OK, really. <laughs> When you're loving, really all it is is these random electrical impulses going on inside of your physical brain. Okay, it's just everything is chemical and electrical and material. Okay, that's physicalism. Okay, obviously as Christians we don't believe that. Okay, we hold to and many others besides Christians hold to a dualist or dualism, and dualism views human nature as being both physical, but, and when we're talking in philosophy or metaphysics, we use the term mind. That, the, that human beings are made up of a body and a mind, and they're distinct. And when we use the term mind, particularly as Christians, we're including more than just what we think of as mental, but we're thinking of the spiritual and the soul, the whole non-material aspect of humanness. Okay? So, and, and there are very strong biblical reasons for holding to the dualist view. They're very strong. The scripture is very clear that we have this dualist nature. OK, but even beyond that, within the realm of logic and metaphysics and philosophy, there are powerful arguments, uh, I think, irrefutable arguments for the dualistic view of man. OK, so really to be a physicalist, you almost have to have an agenda. You really don't want there to be a God. Okay. But the dualist, the dualist views, uh, views human being, what it means to be human is being both a body, but there's something about me that's not body. It's not physical. So I have a brain, but I also have a mind. And that mind, I'm using the word to include all of what's not material about me. Okay. One of the arguments for dualism, and this is fascinating to me, one of the arguments for dualism is this sense we have of what's called identity through change. Okay? 
And what that means is if if we were able to kind of do some kind of hyper scientific whatever and we were to bring in Rick when he was three or four years old and stand him right here, you would not probably recognize this guy right here with me. Okay, because I've totally changed. You know, all the cells in my body, you know, I've just totally changed. I've grown up with you know, all the cells in my body. But, but I know that I'm the same kid that ran around on Pratt Street in Omaha when I was four. I know that. I sense you do too, right? I mean, not in Omaha, but, but you look back on your past and you know you are the same person. You have the same identity that you have. Now, you had when you were just a little crumb crutcher as far back as you can remember. Right? It's what we call identity through change. Now, I want to argue that I believe that identity through change goes on through conversion. In other words, when you got saved, we say all things became new. Okay, right? You became new. You're a new person in Christ, right? So when I became a Christian, did that mean that that the old Rick just went poof and disappeared into thin space? And then God just came and he made a completely new Rick, totally different person, and then just kind of implanted the memory from the old Rick inside the new Rick? No, we don't believe that. At least I don't believe that. I'm the same Rick I was before I was saved. Now, there are many things about me that are new. Okay, but but I'm the same person. And when God saved Rick, he saved the old Rick. He saved the old Rick and he totally transformed me and he changed me. But I'm the same. Ontologically speaking, I am the same person. That's what God wanted to do. He wanted to take that old Rick and save him. And that's what he did. Okay, now. When we realize then that we have these kind of two parts of us and and we call them parts, but they are at this point in our existence, they are inextricably linked together. You can't really separate them, at least not anything other than momentarily. Some people talk about out of body experiences and that's but those are very temporary things if in fact they do exist at all. Okay. But they're very, but as far as our ongoing life is concerned at this point, you can't separate the mind from the body. Remember how I'm using the word mind here. Okay? You can't separate them. But we do believe ultimately they will be separated, right? When we die, we believe that that mind, that spiritual dimension of us, the soul, goes on living. And the body lays down in a grave and... You know, and, and rots and decays and the atoms all go back out and go join other atoms and do something else, right? Okay? So we understand that. You know, we're not talking about resurrection yet. That's another issue. But, but they are distinct. And we know they are distinct because they are ultimately separable. Although at this point, they're not separable. Okay? Now, forgive me here for getting into a lot of metaphysics and... You know, but this is all very pertinent to what the scripture teaches about what it means to be human. Okay. So now we encounter 
Paul and Paul's having this struggle. And the struggle he has is that he finds himself wanting to do one thing, and he find, but, he, but he ends up doing just the opposite of what he wanted to do. And he says, so no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. Okay? Now, what does he mean? Well, there's obviously some sense in which Paul is distinguishing between his I here, whatever that is. He's distinguishing between this I and his flesh. But what's interesting is that later on, instead of using the word flesh, he uses the word body. And he also uses, uh, and he distinguishes the body from the mind. For example, in verse 23, I see a different law, and we won't, we're not going to get to this verse today, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. So there is some sense in which Paul is thinking dualistically. That that he's here, but there's also this other part of him and 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 these two are conflicting with one another. And ultimately, always this part over here always wins. Okay, it always wins. So, so when he refers to the I earlier in the passage, when we get down to verse 23, he seems to refer to that as the law of his mind. His mind is telling him to do one thing, but he finds himself doing another thing based on some law that's at work in his members in his body, okay? And later he'll talk about wanting to be free from the body of death, okay? <clears throat> so, I don't want to suggest here that this is all clear as a bell. And I can tell that because your eyes are going in circles, okay? So, uh, so I don't want to suggest all of this is clear as a bell, okay? N- nor do I want to suggest that we can take these concepts and extrapolate all kinds of really wild stuff out of them, okay? We can't do that, okay? But there is, but there's at least this much we can understand. That Paul is speaking in some sense dualistically and this is Paul. All of this is Paul, okay? But Paul recognizes that in some sense He has a mind and he has members which he also at some times refers to as flesh. Now, again, I want to stipulate because Jim brings this up and it's a good point is that flesh in Scripture has a lot of different ways it's used. Okay? Sometimes flesh is just referred to sinful self. Sometimes flesh is just referred to as, as our body. It's about seven or eight different ways that the word flesh is used in Scripture. Okay? But in the way he's using here, because of the way, the, the way he seems to link things synonymously in the passage, it seems like 
it seems that the way he's using the word flesh here is he's using it in reference to our bodies and our members, our physical aspect, as being particularly susceptible to sin. Okay. That's not to suggest that our mind isn't. But there's some way in which the flesh is particularly susceptible to sin. And, and so Paul's recognized it. And over here, when he looks at the law, he says, this is good. But he finds himself doing something else. So he finds that he's enslaved. And the reason is because he says... Sin has occupied him. Sin is in his flesh, he says. And having sin in his flesh means that the whole Paul does things he doesn't want to do. Okay, so it's not just this part of Paul that's doing something he doesn't want to do. He says, I find I am sinning. I am doing it. But there's another sense in which it's not I. But it's my flesh. Okay? And so there's this this dualism going on with Paul. And the reason this is important for a non-Christian to understand, of course, he doesn't get this whole diagram, you know, uh, and they don't have to have this diagram before they get saved. But the point is that the point a a non-Christian has to come to before he realizes he needs a Savior is he needs to realize he's out of control. He's out of control. Sin has taken over his life. Now, one of the things you can't conclude from this passage, this is okay. There's, you know, there's like I say, this kind of sort of explains things, but not perfectly. The kind of sort of explains things, but you don't want to extrapolate out from it other wild ideas. And one of the wild ideas you don't want to extrapolate out from this is the idea that okay, he's not responsible for his sin. He's not causing his sin, okay? That's clearly not a valid conclusion. Either, no matter how you look at the passage, if you look at the passage as a believer or as an unbeliever, either way, that's an invalid conclusion. Paul is not suggesting that since it's not me, I'm off scot-free. You know, because I'm not, you know, because I really don't have any say. This, this, this whole thing is Paul, Okay. And we know that Paul's not off scot-free, whether he's speaking as a believer or an unbeliever, because Scripture makes it clear that the whole person is judged for sin, right? The whole person is judged for sin. So God holds the whole person as responsible for sin. There's no place in Scripture that says where God says, well, you know, I understand, really it was just sin in your in your members and so you know and you really want to do something else and so you're okay he doesn't say that he doesn't say that about the unbeliever and he doesn't say it about the believer now the believer is off the hook but why is the believer off the hook Jesus paid it all all. because he's forgiven because Christ died for our sins. It's not because I can go, oh, well, really wasn't me, God. I wanted to do what's right. That someone has said the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Right? So I can't say to God, well, you know, it really wasn't me. You know, I had no control in this thing. 
I can't say that. Or the devil made me do it. Yeah, I can't say that, right? I have to, I have to acknowledge that that the whole me has sinned. Okay, but what Paul is, the point Paul is making is not that he's not somehow responsible. That's not what he's the point he's making. The point he's making, trying to make, is that is that sin has permeated his life and taken control. He's trying to make the point that I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. So here I have the I or the mind side of me, okay? But that mind side is completely wed to and joined to the flesh. It is a flesh. And as long as it's a flesh, I'm in bondage to sin. This is why Romans chapter 6 is so important. Because what Romans chapter 6 teaches us is that this bondage is broken. Not, our, not the fact that we're still in the flesh. We obviously still are. But the Christian, when he comes to Christ and Christ comes into his life and forgives his sin, this slavery to sin is broken. He no longer has to sin. He can sin, but he doesn't have to. We studied all that when we were in Romans 6, right? So... Paul says uh, in verse 18, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Now, there's several different ways of looking at that. But I think the most compelling way to understand this is, is, that, is that Paul is now recognizing that, that sin dominates his life. And and when he says there is nothing good in me, he means in his in his flesh, in his in his members, there's nothing good. It, he's clearly not saying that he never wants to do good because he's already established that he does want to do good. Okay. But what he's saying is there's this aspect of me that is so controlled by sin and never wants to do good. Never wants to do, or never does do good, I should say. Now, just let me clarify something here. Paul is very clear in the earlier chapters of Romans, when we were studying Romans 1, 2, and 3, he's very clear that the mind gets affected by sin too. So, we're not suggesting here that the mind just is over here and it's totally unimpacted, it's unfallen. We're not saying the mind is unfallen. Clearly, Romans 1, 2, and 3 teaches us the mind is fallen. talks about... God giving them over to depraved minds, etc., etc. So the mind gets affected, but there's still some element in which the mind is able, and Romans 1, 2, and 3 teaches this as well, the mind is able to see the law and agree that it is good. It can do that. That's the conscience in us. That's the thing that God has placed in us that recognizes what is good. And I see that good, and I know that's good, and even though I know it's good, and I want to do it, I find myself doing just the opposite. It's a pretty bleak picture Paul paints, isn't it? It's a pretty desperate picture. And in fact, when we get to the end of the chapter, he's going to throw up his hands and say, who will deliver me from this? Okay. The unbeliever is in a desperate, desperate condition. Because sin is killing him. And he can't do anything about it. Apart from Christ. 
So, so he says in verse 20, he says that if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. So, so Paul now has come to understand that sin is not this little toy that he can just play with at will and then set aside. But sin is the thing that has taken over his life. And he's in bondage to it. He's enslaved to it. And unless he can, unless something can be done to break that bondage, he is destined to eternal death. Now, let me just go back for a moment. There's one thing I, want, I wanted to, uh, to bring up is that sometimes Romans 7 is used uh, and, and it doesn't have by those who hold the regenerate position. The position this is talking about a believer. It doesn't have to be, but some of those who hold to that position believe that Romans 7 is teaching that we have two natures. A sin nature and a, a new nature. Okay? So this idea we have two natures. Okay? And, and I've heard several times it illustrated with the story about the the Indian boy who goes to his father or whatever and he says, says Dad, I just, you know, it's like I have these two things inside of me and they're constantly fighting. It's just like, it's like I have two dogs fighting inside of me. A good dog and a bad dog. And they're constantly fighting with one another. And his father says, well, which one wins? And the boy says, well, the one I feed the most, you know. And, uh, you know, there's some, uh, some interesting lessons there. It's an interesting parallel, but it's, but it's born out of the idea that we have a new nature and an old nature. Two natures, right? Okay. Now, Paul's theology, however, is dualistic. Not tripartite. What's the problem? What's the problem with the two nature view? I don't see a problem. <laughs> I didn't either for many years until fairly recently, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. What? Which one wins? When you're confronted with temptation, does the new nature or the old nature win? Okay, now she said it. Everybody else was reluctant to say it. But isn't that the truth? You, the old nature is dead. That's my view. And it's probably your view until it sounds like we The old nature is dead. But we give a power by, by giving into it. Okay. Okay. So, in reality, you have two natures. And you give power to one of them. Either the new nature or the old nature. Which means you're really three. Because you have... You have the new and you have the old and something chooses between them. This was really graphically brought to my mind here just very recently, actually. I was listening to a, 
I was listening to a, he's a mature believer, but he's a younger brother in Christ. And he was asking the question, when I sin, what chooses to sin? Is it my new nature? Or is it my old nature? What chooses to sin? Well, if I have two natures, an old nature and a new nature, and something chooses between them, that implies a tripartite view of human nature, right? Rather than a dualistic view. Now, maybe it doesn't, but that's the only way I can figure it out. So I want to suggest to you that the right view is that I am dualistic. I have a mind and I have the members of my body that incorporates that fallen aspect of me, right? Okay. And when I was saved, I got something else. What did I get? I got Christ. I got the Holy Spirit. So now I have the Holy Spirit living in me. And that makes everything different. Because my bondage to the flesh is broken, but I still have the mind and the mind can still choose. But now I have the Holy Spirit empowering my mind, giving power to my mind, and breaking my bondage to the flesh. And so now, what does he say in Romans 6? He says, present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. So now I have a choice. I have, I have the old flesh. I have the old body. It's still attached to me. But the inner me, the inner me, is now empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I can choose to obey Christ. Well, you just mentioned three. So I don't see the distinction. The, the three, the, 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 the third one is the Holy Spirit. And that's not me. He's distinct from me. He's not me. He is... He is God. Yes. He's the indwelling God. So, my human nature remains the same. My human nature remains that I have a mind and I have the members. Okay, My human nature is the same. But now I have something, someone else with me. I have the Holy Spirit indwelling me. And so, I can choose when, when my flesh is screaming out, you know, do this. And the Holy Spirit is over here saying... Present your members to me as instruments of righteousness. And I can choose between those two. But I'm not choosing between two natures. I am a new man in Christ. I am a new man. And my bondage to the flesh is broken. And I have the indwelling spirit. And I can choose whether or not I will present myself to God, who now indwells me, or I can present myself to sin, which is still hanging on in my members, but my bondage and my slavery to that has been broken by Christ. Well, we're way over time. So we'll stop and we'll go on next week in the next verses.